Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Tell me that you listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Doors for writing and recording that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Real quick, if you enjoy the show, join our Facebook group. Just uh, search Stick to Wrestling and we'll let you right in. I have been going nuts putting up a lot of classic pro wrestling photos. I've got like 5,000 of them, and I don't know what else to do with them. Uh, but it's really cool. It's a cool group. We talk about mostly wrestling, but sometimes more than just wrestling. And that's cool, too. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just go on that app. Search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Six Wrestling logo as his avatar. And with that, 1982 was 40 years ago, and I would like to talk about classic AWA wrestling from that year with my friend, a returning guest, Brad Brightsman. Brad, thanks for coming on. Thank you for asking me, John. I appreciate it. Now, I, I have a question that's not exactly 1982. It went into 1982. Hulk Hogan shows up in the AWA as a heel with Johnny Valiant as his manager. Next thing, he's a babyface, but the magazines never really told us how he got from point A to point B. I know the fans just basically decided that, hey, we like this guy. But how did they explain this on TV? Well, in the summer of 1981, they brought in Hulk Hogan. And, well, they did Johnny Valiant promos with uh, with Hogan. And Hogan wouldn't speak and things like that. He would just pose and stuff like that. But they were gearing him to be a heel. You could tell just by the tenor and having Johnny Valiant. And um, he came out um, in uh, August of 1981 at the for his first show at the Minneapolis Auditorium. And he came out and, and did a squash match against three job guys. And the fans kind of liked him and cheer, didn't boo him or they kind of cheered him. So I know uh, within two months he was they just. Johnny Valiant just disappeared, which isn't a bad thing in some senses. But um, Johnny Valiant was gone, and Hogan was just kind of grandfathered in to six-man tag matches with Gagne and Brunzel against um, um, oh horrible okay against uh, uh, Black well six-man tags with Jerry Blackwell and the other team. Because the whole thing was he was going to slam Jerry Blackwell. And so they just kind of worked him in that way. And there wasn't a, a, an angle done because it's the AWA. And there wasn't an angle done or really anything really mentioned. But they, they played that Rocky clip ad nauseum on TV. And, um, he, yeah, it was just within a month or two that he was there that they totally changed gears with him. I get it. So they just kind of made an adjustment. You know, Hogan... Uh, he, it's insinuated that he's a bad guy because he's with Valiant and he's posing, but he hasn't done anything really heelish yet. And you know, it, was, it was almost like, okay, just a little adjustment. We're moving forward. Yeah, and uh, you know, knowing knowing the Ganyas or Vern and stuff, I, I, Vern probably didn't think that there was really much that they could get out of him. Um, and he was probably pleasantly surprised, I guess, in that sense. But Hogan was so huge; he was way bigger than. I mean, we're used to Jesse Ventura and. You know, we saw Ken Patera in 82, which we'll get to. And 
you know, by, guys with great physiques, but Hogan was just so, so big. And, you know, the fans just liked him. Yeah, I mean, he got a lot of cheers when he was out here right before that in the WWF. I mean, he looked like he was going to be the next superstar Billy Graham, and he turned into way more than that, obviously. Yeah, and 1982 is is kind of the year it all blossoms. So as we go through, um, I'll throw out some things where they kind of uh, moved him to a higher echelon as they went. Yeah, I mean, on the heel side, I'm not sure, you know, what Hogan could have done. I mean, you know, obviously there's money in Hogan Bachwinkle. There's money in Hogan Patera, Hogan Blackwell, Hogan Ventura. So uh, it seemed like it, it, you know, it didn't seem right at the time because he was, he was a bad guy in the WWF. Then he was a bad guy in Florida. But if you take a step back and look at it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It was a crazy phenomenon. It was something that really... I mean, the whole Hulkamania running wild thing did start in the Twin Cities with AWA and, I mean, you know, the core cities. Um, and I, he must have gotten a good reaction everywhere because they kept moving him up the card. And, and you know, he was in main events within, you know, four or five months of his uh, debut. Yeah, I didn't see when he was in the WWF, I thought he was, OK, this guy is going to be a big star. But I mean, <laughs> little did I know what was going to come out of that. So 1982, Brad, what were the big AWA uh, stories and happenings from that year? OK, well, 1982 was the year that they had. Um, it was the sorry, I just got the call beeped in of all things. 1982 was the year. Phased out the smaller buildings in the Twin Cities for years and years and years. They ran the St. Paul Auditorium and they ran the Minneapolis Auditorium on kind of, you know, uh, and occasionally the St. Paul Civic Center from 73 on for the really big shows. But the business had grown in 1982 when those smaller buildings were phased out and everything went to the 18,000 seat Civic Center. So it was a, a it was a fruitful and a, a great year for AWA business wise. And, you know, this in 82, things were just building momentum. 83 was even bigger. But we're talking about 82. But things there was definite forward momentum for sure. On on, on top, I've got, you know, just going through the results and things like that to kind of jar my memory because I was attending on a regular basis at this point. You know, I was pretty young. Um, Gagne and Brunzel are pretty much on top of every show. Um uh, you know, AWA being a tag team uh, territory for the most part for a long time. Gagne and Brunzel were at their peak there, and they uh, they worked some some great programs that I can get into. Bobby Duncombe and Ken Patero were brought in as the Black and Blue Express, and um, they were part of the Heenan family. and And it it didn't really didn't really work great. Um, they were great foils for. For Hogan and six-man tag matches, and we're talking about the AWA, and they love their six-man tag matches, a lot of them, too many. Um, but that's the way that they would, would build up a champion or something to uh, to work. We've got the Jerry Blackwell and Adnan El Casey, your favorite team. For the first quarter quarter to third of the year, that was like the number one program that, that headlined all over the place. And no, Brad, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, now, I know every territory is different. The WWF that I grew up with and the AWA were, were similar in a lot of ways. 
but one way the WWF was different than the actually one way the AWA was different than any other promotion, there was not a lot of turnaround. Like the WWF, you had backland all the time, and then they kind of you know the the heels. There was a revolving door of heels. Even the baby faces, they they'd stick around for two years and then they leave for a year or two and come back. Gagne and Brunzel, I believe they started teaming in 73 or 74, and now here it is eight or nine years later. But it sounds like they were still as over as can be, like they, they didn't get a stale. No, they they didn't. I mean, they, they were a team in 74, they started, and um, they won their first AWA Tag Team Championship in 77. And um, between 77 and 82, we're talking about, they were they were pretty much on top. Of course, there was the seventy nine ish eighty where Brunzel went down to Mid Atlantic for a while, and um, they did other things during that time. But for the most part, they were pretty steady uh, as as main eventers. Let's see, I've got the next thing that one of the you know maybe not my favorite thing or, or a lot of people's non favorite thing is that Buck Zumhoff got a big push in nineteen eighty two and had some 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 key programs and not talking about Buxomhoff as far as what kind of human being he turned out to be, but there was a, a good angle shot in the studio, the television studio where Bobby Heenan got uh, sideways with Buxomhoff, took his, his boom box. And this was a 1982 boom box. And those of us that are old enough to remember what boom boxes were like. This was a really big boom box. I mean, it was probably a. Oh, you could park a car in one of those things. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and Buck Zumhoff would bring it out, and, you know, put the put the house mic up to it, and things like that, so, for his music, which is the earliest dawn of music. Now that I'm thinking about it, that I experienced. But anyway, none, nonetheless, Bobby Heenan took the boombox on AWA television and smashed the living hell out of it on a ring post, and uh, that was spectacular to see. And uh, so. So Zumhoff gets into a um, a few a big feud with Heenan, which led to a lot of matches. Uh, little, you know, the Weasel Suit was out. He had a lot of a lot of matches with Bobby Heenan uh, based on that. Zumhoff even in, late in the year in the Twin Cities um, had Andre the Giant as a tag partner on the second match on the car or the second from the top match against that Blackwell and somebody, but um, and Heenan probably. But and he also had a big Zumoff had a big program with Rene Goulet, which was entertaining. So was he Sergeant Jacques Goulet out there? Yeah, he was Sergeant Jacques Goulet. You're correct. Okay, right. And then we move into uh, Blackwell and Adnan became the top team for uh, for the fact that probably because Ventura and Adonis uh, were out of there, they were they were New York bound, as we say. And uh, they both had runs against Backlund, uh, Donis with a spectacular run against Backlund, and Ventura with a horrible one, of course. Of course. But, yeah, Ventura and Adonis were on top with Gagne and Brunzel, and that kind of ran, ran its course. And then after it did run its course, um, they did an angle where they got suspended for life, or, suspe- you know, Wally Carbo was all up in arms on TV. He had, I think they attacked Wally Carbo, which is always fun. But uh, they were <laughs> They were out the door, and uh, yeah, I've already mentioned the Blackwell and Adnan team was, you know, they turned Jerry Blackwell into a sheik, Ayatollah Blackwell. There was a lot of good camp footage of him, you know, with the harem all over him and eating extravagant meals, little skits they would do. Oh, oh God, that, 
Because I've never sound that. That sounds hilarious. Oh, it was so ridiculous because Jerry Blackwell, you know, he's got that southern accent. He's wearing the chic garb, the gimmick. And he's supposed to be Ayatollah Blackwell, so he had a very busy year as well. And Patera wound up doing that too, right? With the, uh, with the, not, maybe not with the harem, but certainly with the, uh, the headgear. They did that with Patera into 83. Okay. I was going to mention that Patera was a strange, had a strange run in AWA. I, I just never sensed that he was really that over. Um, it's not like, you know, they tried to use him as a baby face because it's Ken Patera and that would never work. It never did. Um, but, no. but, um, yeah, Patera, um, hold on, I got stuck. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. My, my notes are a hot mess tonight, guys. So, um, yeah, so they did that with Patera into 83, where Bobby Heenan purchased Ken, or wait a minute, Bobby Heenan sold Ken Patera to Sheik Adnan and El Casey, uh, and then, uh, he became the, the, the Arabic character. And uh, that was. Yeah, I let's think, talk about Patera a little bit. When did first. he come back to the AWA? I know in '81 he walked out of Georgia, and things never really seemed to be the same for Patera because he was on my cable every Saturday, looking like a guy who could be the next NWA champion. Then he goes to the AWA, and he's just part of a tag team, and he looks like he's the number two guy in the tag team, at least based on what I was reading in the magazines. I mean. Yeah, when did he come back and he wound up with Heenan and then he wound, when did he wind up going up from Heenan to El Casey? Well, when did that happen? Like, yeah, I know it happened. I think it happened in 82, but like, do you remember about when? Uh, I think, well, the Christmas Day night show, it was still Blackwell and, uh, Blackwell and Casey together. So I think it happened in early 83 for that sort of situation. Yeah. When Patera came in in uh, early 82, they put him with Bobby Duncan, who had been tag team champions through the AWA with Jack Lanza uh, up till 77. So he'd been in before, but Duncan and Patera were the, called the Black and Blue Express, and they were with, 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 with Bobby Heenan, and it just, it just never really clicked. They, they did main events and things like that, but generally to put Hogan over in one way or another. And yeah, Patera just didn't work in the AWA. And I know he was... He had a really good run out east, and he, you know, he's down south for a while. But it just, it just didn't seem to uh, seem to really work out when he was here. But he had a, a good, a decent run for uh, maybe a year, year and a half. But he was up here. So, what were your thoughts as as a fan of seeing Adonis and Ventura out in New York at first? Well, I knew about them from the magazines. I knew they had been AWA champions, and then they both come in at the same time, both with Fred, with Fred Blassie as their manager, and it kind of I thought it was kind of strange because I saw them as a tag team, the East West Connection, and you know, but they honestly they they wrestled some tag team matches, but not very many out here. But I mean, it was. It almost felt like a faction, if that makes sense. A small faction, but a faction nonetheless. Yes, and I mean, how great was Adrian Adonis in 1982? I mean, he was getting heavy still, but he wasn't out of control yet. But he was magnificent in the ring. Uh, and Jesse, you know, conventional wisdom is that Jesse could talk and Adonis could work. But Adonis was a good interview, too. 
in his own right. So when they, they went out there and they, they kind of split them up and, you know, I know they're both, as I mentioned earlier, they both had to run against Backlund and, and, uh, and things like that. But Jesse was back by the end of the year without Adonis by the Christmas day night show in 82. He had a match with Hogan that I was in the arena for, and it was not good. The footage does exist. I don't think Ventura and Hogan really worked in concert with each other very well. I think there was behind the scenes problems with that. But they did give it a shot. So, yeah, they did. I, I can see that because these guys, I, you know, I don't have too many bad things to say about either guy, but both of them are supposedly, even back before Jesse was a, a governor or anything like that, or a mayor, uh, both guys had pretty big egos and you know you only need one of those guys in the match and you have two of those guys it's a problem exactly that's exactly correct um as i'm moving along here after adonis and ventura moved to new york in my notes um bachwinkle had a very busy year uh in 1982 now nick was working out of houston he was a traveling champion he had dates in other territories and was really active in 1982. He began the year in a, in a program with Tito Santana as a challenger, which yielded very good matches. Now, how did Tito get over as a challenger? Did he seem like he was a real threat to Nick Bockwinkle or no? Yeah, he did because the matches were good and they had a series and Tito was really, really over at that point in the AWA. Did done the stalled run with him and Adnan Casey in late uh, late spring of 81 with, where uh, Casey conked him with the sword on TV and and, uh, and uh, Tito bled but I've but, seen that yeah it was it was really an exciting angle for me uh, as a, what I was I 13 years old but uh, it probably hasn't aged particularly well I mean the AWA didn't well, I compare the AWA to the WWF Two promotions that did not run very many angles. I mean, as in count them on one hand for the entire year. Exactly. I mean, they were, they ran there. I've seen interviews with Greg Gagne where he said he admits he says we, we'd run two or three angles a year and just go off that. And that sounds like it's pretty accurate as far as my memory serves. Bachwinkle, but it worked. Yeah, it did. I mean, both the AWA and WWF were. Major successes in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. So, I mean, why complicate things when you don't have to? So, yeah, I understand. I I agree completely. Bachwinkle's challengers, um, Tito Santana. And then I was going across results last night in preparation, and I found something that I thought was kind of something that I didn't really wasn't aware of. Uh, Hogan had a title match against Nick Bockwinkel in Chicago at the amphitheater as early as February of 1982. Oh, wow. Which threw me for a loop because I did find some results uh, where Hogan got Twin Cities title matches against Bockwinkel, uh, 418 and 620. So that's the, uh, the spring and the summer. And I don't really recall what they did they did false finishes type of things but if you would have asked me i would have thought that you know in hindsight that that hogan wasn't really thought of as, as a real didn't have the run with bachwinkle till 83 yet it was earlier than i recalled of course leading up to super sunday in i think it was april of 83 the big you know the blow off so to speak 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it was, it was, um, Hogan was, um, Hogan was in there earlier than, than I would have guessed and remembered, but he was over like crazy, but he, Hogan was, uh, what they did with him is they put him in a lot, a whole ton of six man tag matches. And I think that was kind of as a safety precaution, you know, because they put him with Gagne and Brunzel as a tag team. It's just to, you know, make sure that they're not going to stink the joint out. Right, right. Because Hogan was, I want to call him green in 1982, but he, he wasn't, he hadn't really honed his craft as well as he would end up honing his craft at that point. And, uh, as a matter of fact, Andre and Andre the Giant came in for the Battle Royals in the fall, but they did at the Twin Cities at Civic Center, they did, um, I don't have a date on this either, but they did Andre and Hogan against Heenan, Patera, Duncombe, and Bachwinkle. A handicap match, two on four, where Andre and Hogan went over. And that's really, really pushing things, it seems like. Um, for that a, match is out there, by the way. Yeah, I don't know how well it's aged. I have not seen it recently. But I do remember it happening. Um, we can't talk about Nick Bachwinkle in 1982. Without the 824, which is August of, August of 82, of course, with Otto Vons beating him for the belt in St. Paul. I think I've told this story on one of, one of our, our, uh, previous meetings, but Mick Karch, who's a local good guy and ran the Nick Bockwinkle fan club for, you know, almost two decades. He, he was really on the cutting edge of things because he had this thing called the wrestling supervention. And it was like a convention thing that the day of this, this, this show. And he had Bachwinkle Brigade, which was the name of his fan club. He had Bachwinkle Brigade members in from all over the country, some from even out of the country. And they did like a meet and greet thing with Nick, I think, because Nick would do that in the afternoon. And then, of course, he, he plans all this around, okay, well, he's going to defend against Otto Vaughn. So all these people are there, dozens of people in the Bachwinkle Brigade fan club. To see Otto Vons pin Nick Bockwinkle. <laughs> oh, lost. wow, that's right. That night. And then, going through results, I did see that on, it looks like 620, it looks like Otto Vons successfully defended the AWA Championship at the Civic Center against Bockwinkle. So he, he beat him in a rematch, too. And if you've, seen the, if you've seen the match, when Otto gets the pin to win the belt, he gets a big pop in the Civic Center. Dare I say the guy was over? I don't know. It's um, it's 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 the stuff of legends and lore as far as what you're going to be doing. Well, you know what? I mean, anytime there's a title switch. I mean, I was at the Boston Garden in 1984, and Greg Valentine was wrestling. I think he was wrestling Brian Blair, and he had his robe on. And they they say, and you know, they announce they intro Brian Blair, and they intro Greg Valentine, and they say. And the new Intercontinental Champion, Greg Valentine, and he takes off his robe and he's got the belt. It hadn't aired on TV yet. And the place went nuts because it's a title change. So I think that might have been what happened in St. Paul. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. People were just excited to see to see a title change or something. And they did. I mean, Otto, you know, I hate to defend anything. Otto Vance is really uncomfortable. But (laughs) they did. They had run an angle with him on TV as well, where he comes out and he's tearing the phone books in half. 
you know, the phone books are on a, a small table in the middle of the ring. Well, you know, of course, you know what that's going to going to lead to. Oh, yeah. And the Heenan family comes out. and They try to rip the phone books to no avail. And they're getting frustrated. And they 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 jump Otto Vance and conk him over the head with the table. And Otto gets some color and, uh, you know, some momentum, I suppose. Because anytime, I mean, Buck Zumhoff could get over working with Bobby Heenan. I mean, uh, of course, if you're out there with that crew and that much talent, you're going to get over because they're going to make you look good. And they certainly did that. But yeah, Otto was tearing phone books in half. is a feat of strength. And there's so, a trick to that, by the way. Yeah, I guess it's, they have to gimmick the, the phone book or something. No, like, it's just the way you tear it. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's, there's a trick to it. I, I forget what the trick is, but like there was a time when I was in my mid-teens where I could tear up a phone book because I knew the trick. You could tear up a phone book in your mid-teens? That's amazing. That's great. It isn't. It's not a feat of strength. It's a trick. <laughs> it's like uh, that thing where they pushed a nail through the board. All of those feats oh. of strength. Those are all they're, – they're all, there's a trick to all of them. Right. You've got to get the leverage or the whatever it's called. They've got gimmicks inside the, 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 the big spike that they bend or whatever it will be as far as that goes. I feel like I'm jumping all over the place. I apologize for that. No, you're good, man. Um, so Otto, so so Nick Bockwinkel wins back. Otto has one title defense in the Twin Cities uh, successfully against Nick, and then uh, I guess it is 6:20 when he wins it back in Chicago. I think I got the date wrong earlier, but 6:20 uh, he wins it back. Bockwinkel does, and then uh, Bockwinkel went into a program with Rick Martell with uh, several matches that were excellent. Of course. Uh, yeah, and Martell Nick, is so underrated. He really is. He really is. And I'm going to get more into a Rick Martell situation with the AWA as we go on. But yeah, he was he was an excellent challenger for Bachwinkle and very believable too. They, those two put on some clinics, and uh, that was really good. And I mentioned earlier that Nick was a traveling champion. They had a Memphis only holdup of the AWA heavyweight championship. Uh, with a with a crazy finish against Jerry Lawler at the Mid South Coliseum, and it what it didn't really get any, you know, they they just kind of kept it in Memphis. But they held up the AWA title for a rematch where Nick won it again. But uh, at the end of the year, um, late December, Nick Bockwinkel was the title was held up. It was never mentioned on AWA TV locally, but the title was held up with Lawler, and they did a did an angle with that. So they did a thing, and I think it was 1982 when Nick Bockwinkel went into Memphis, and as AWA champion, he won the Southern Heavyweight Champion from Jerry Lawler, and he had both belts. And then Lawler pinned him for the Southern title, which means he could pin him for the AWA title. Yeah, they knew how to do business down there, and 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 Bockwinkel was excellent in Memphis, as he was everywhere. Jumping around a little bit, I mentioned that they did moved out of the smaller buildings here locally in the Twin Cities. 1982 was a year that uh, AWA was heavily into San Francisco. They were trying it there, and um, they were using uh, Patterson and Stevens, well-established, long-time, decade-long stars. Uh, but they were using a lot of Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens on top of those shows. The San Francisco thing didn't work out, didn't pan out long term, but um, it uh, they definitely um, they definitely uh, tried with that. 
Ray Stevens had been turned back babyface. You know, they changed him back and forth so often. I don't even remember what led to that. But uh, Patera and Patera, Patterson and Stevens were heels about 77, 78 in the AWA as a tag team. Tag team. But they were babyfaces uh, in, in 1982. And I think we saw, I think they were on a couple of local cards as well. But they were into they were into that, that market. AWA certainly was at that time. Yeah, I mean, the AWA was really getting big. I mean, they were east to Chicago. They were uh, Omaha. They were west to San Francisco and Salt Lake City. So, you know, they were, they were, get, it was becoming a big promotion. They were in Denver. They were in, you know, obviously Milwaukee, you know, the big cities in, in Minnesota. So they've got some real momentum going by this point. Yep. Momentum that would kind of come to a, Ahead in, in 1983, which I would think on paper has got to be their best year ever business-wise. But um, they were definitely building towards that throughout 1982, and things were things were going really well as far as that goes. I do have in my notes, there's a conspicuous absence, and I think I'm going to need your help on this one, John. Okay. In 1982, there's a conspicuous absence of, of Kurt Hennig from any AWA results. He was out here. He was he was he was out. He, I thought maybe it was either Portland or he was in uh, out out east in the WWF. But he yeah. was he showed up. I want to say September or August of 1981, and right. I think he was here until like the beginning of 1983, and I think he went to Portland after that. Yeah, I was reading a, a YouTube comment maybe six months ago. It's like, oh, McAdam, he's unprepared. I, I didn't have the time to look. I had no idea I was going to get hit with that, but I think that's pretty accurate. How did um, now from where you were? And um, I wasn't get. I wasn't. I didn't have. Uh, I had USA Network, I guess. So I got the Madison Square Garden shows. You know, long after they were what happened live. But how was Kurt Henning? How did they use him? Did they use him as kind of a he wasn't really a job guy, I don't think. Wasn't he kind of a maybe a Tony Gurria type of – I mean, he's very young, obviously, in 1982. But, I mean, uh, did, did he? Did you feel like he got any kind of push? Or I know that the clip you left with him and Buddy Rose doing the the, uh, the match on, on WWF TV, I don't know. How do you feel like he was pushed out east? He got a jobber to the stars type of push. I actually uh, was around Kurt once, and I ran him because I was at a an arena in early 82 and I saw him do a clean job to Charlie Fulton. Uh, his push was very similar to that of a Rick McGraw, Steve Travis, Eddie Gilbert out here. Like those four were pretty much interchangeable when it comes push wise. Obviously, that was going to last long for Kurt Henning. Yeah. And, you know, that really worked out beautifully for Kurt Henning as we Unfortunately, by the time he was on top in AWA land, we're talking about a time when the promotion was definitely on the down downswing of of momentum wise. But he just he he you know he went out on the road to to Portland WWF and he got a lot of experience and 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 he was just kind of a mid card guy when he would appear here and he was on one show a year uh, at the Civic Center. But, yeah, I figured he was back on vacation or something because, you know, he's from here. Of course, he was from here. And Yeah, Henning didn't seem like he did much even in the AWA until early 86 when 
he, I think it was early 86, when he and Scott Hall became the tag team champions. Like, it was like, oh wow, you know, he just took a, a big step up in my eyes at least. Definitely. And Kurt Hennig was one of those guys that if they'd have a pull apart Civic Center or say Bachwinkle would go berserk or something, maybe not Bachwinkle, maybe Jerry Blackwell or somebody, and they'd be ringing the bell over and over and for, you know, for God's sake, get the paramedics out here. Kurt would always be one of those guys that would run in and try to pull, do the pull-aparts and things like that, the guys from the back with his shirt off and just the jeans on. And I noticed that that a couple of times Kurt got colored doing that. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and that's what, you know, that kind of, it, it, the way it played was sort of they're, they're going to, they're gonna something's going to happen with this guy because usually when they have the pull-aparts, it's the job guys that come in and they take bumps and stuff. But Kurt Henning would, would come out and do that, and he'd get all bloody and stuff. And I, I think he did it for Brody, uh, and that's from several years after. But he did it. I, I remember him seeing him do it a few times. So what a talent. What a what a talent he was. He really was. Hey, I have a question. Larry Henning, I, I was looking through some results, and I saw Larry yeah. Henning a couple of times in 1982. And I was like, wow, I thought he was long retired obviously he wasn't he made some appearances in 84 and 85 as well but was there anything leading up to that or did they just throw him out there i can't lie right now and tell you that i can't remember (laughs) that's okay larry hennig um larry hennig was out of the spotlight for quite a while by 82 but um he was definitely a baby face when they'd use him but i don't remember what the angle was he may have been they may uh, i wish i had the results in front of me but um they may have had him team up with kurt to kind of avenge something where some where somebody had gone stepped out of line with kurt so to speak so yeah i think there's probably something along those lines i mean that makes sense because larry henning was a huge deal in the awa for a long time yeah he certainly was and he uh he and harley race um were were the tag team in the sixties that that did a lot of good business and uh, they turned him babyface in seventy four of course when uh, the Heenan's uh, Heenan's returned to the AWA from sixty nine and seventy when he uh, came to Greg Gagne's aid after they they laid Greg Gagne out on TV which is a clip that I think everyone's probably seen by now but uh, from that point the the axe was a babyface and you know. He was definitely getting older by that point, and he, you know, he wasn't in the greatest condition. But you know, the longtime fans, I'm sure, enjoyed that immensely. I mean, we're talking outside of 1982 here, but if you, if you, the listener, have not seen this, there was a match. I believe it was in Hammond, Indiana. It yep. was the Hennings, Kurt and uh, Kurt and Larry against the Road Warriors, and a full scale riot broke out. That's almost it was early 1985. I believe it's on YouTube, but, I mean, if you haven't seen it, seek it out. This thing's crazy. It was remarkable, and I don't want to give away the plot or anything, but they got – Kurt was really starting to blossom at that point, and they, they got – they did the deal where the Hammond Civic Center um, there where uh, Dick the Bruiser ran for so many years, but they did the deal where Kurt got his, his head stuck between the ropes and he got flipped over, so he was trapped and he was choking, so to speak. And then uh, the Road Warriors used the chair on him, and, and he, he got color, very obvious color. <laughs> with the Oh, chair. I remember that, yeah. And then they, they, they actually went back and edited it and, you know, did like a crowd shot or a slow-mo or something so you couldn't see it. 
couldn't see Kurt, you know, obviously cutting himself. But yeah, that was, that was, it was remarkable. The road warriors, I mean, there's chairs being thrown as, as the camera pans over as they're trying to get out of there after they did their deal. And, you know, they were kicking fans and there was, there was, yeah, it was like a riot. And that's not a big building either, that Hammond Civic Center. But, um, no, it was, and that was, was the first time I've ever seen, I had ever seen anything like that. It aired on AWA TV in 1985. And you're just like, whoa. Yeah, you know, wouldn't you? I guess one of my thoughts was, I mean, Brody went through and caught, raised hell, but that was later in the AWA. But, but you know, why would you want to show? Maybe you know, the, the fans were heavily discouraged for good reason for getting involved with the heels, you know, because that that wasn't going to end well. But lawsuits and everything were probably, you know, on the cusp of that happening and things like that. But yeah, that was a red hot angle. I mean, who's, who's going to be probably. crazy enough to, to like look at Road Warrior Hawk and say, you know what, I'm going to get into you, do it with you right now? Yeah, I want to help Kurt handing that bad. Yeah, yeah. So that that led to a program, but we're talking talk about '82 now. But that's a little later. But the station okay. flows. Sheik Adnan El Casey, I have on here. Uh, was wearing a cast all of 1982, and that figured prominently into the finishes of a lot of matches with Gagne and Brunzel. Of uh, course. On Christmas night, I was there, um, and uh, they, they, what they said is that Adnan had to wear padding over the cast, so he had it all taped up with padding so he couldn't use it as a weapon, which they did with Bobby Heenan in 1980, but then again, they came what came around back to it, but, but Adnan had, had to wear the damn cast all year long. And um, he would take the padding off the cast and get them DQ'd, knock out, you know, Greg Gagne or Brunzel would get color on that or something like that. So that was a key thing. I think that had to do with, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of overlooked things in 82 that came around when the 80 was white hot a year or two later that, uh, you know, people maybe not have been exposed to. But Fern came out of retirement to work with Mad Dog with Sean versus the Sheiks. And I think that's where they broke, quote unquote, broke Adnan's arm. And that's 8882 at the Civic Center. So Vern did a comeback in 82 that's kind of been forgotten, I think. You're right. It didn't get that much coverage in the magazine. So, I mean, I knew about it, but it's something like I had to think, oh, yeah, he did come back in 82. Yeah, he did. And and they did a they did a pretty hot angle at the Civic Center that I've seen. I think I had the raw footage of or something where they laid Vern out. Before that, Vern and Mad Dog and the Sheiks really did a number. I think Vern did a run-in as Mad Dog with Sean was getting laid out, and it was uh, it was quite uh, Gene Okerlund just screaming over the microphone, get the paramedics and, and things like that. And Vern's out there in, in a sweater, you know, and he's been laid out, stuff like that. So he once went, went once again. As he had done previously and did after, he got Mad Dog with Sean to be his tag team partner. And then they, uh, they did the hot match in uh, August of 82 at, at the Civic Center. Uh, let's see what else I have here. All right. Oh. Now, let me ask you a question about Nick Bockwinkle. Bockwinkle had been champion uh, since 1975 uh, minus the Vern run, uh, which yeah. lasted about a year. Not, not even a year. Oh, no, it was about a year. Uh, was Nick... Was it Nick feeling state AWA champion to you or in general? 
No, because he was such a great performer. Um, okay. As AWA champion, I mean, Nick Bockwinkel is in his mid, well, he's in his late 40s in 1982. And he'd been in the AWA since 1971, I believe. I may be wrong on that, but. but oh, yeah, 71 sounds right. But he was, he was the AWA champion from very late 75 all the way to, to 1980 when Vern, Vern got the belt back in Chicago at Comiskey. But, um, uh, no, Bachman was always very, he had great heat. Everyone wanted to see him get beat for the belt. Um, and he, and he, he was, his matches were always terrific. Um, Rick Martell, all those, all those, 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 those programs he had, he made the guys look great. Even into 83, which is, you know, the next year, but he had a great one with Wahoo McDaniel. And I have to say this about Wahoo McDaniel at this juncture. I've come to appreciate Wahoo's work so much more in the last five or six years. The guy never seen, he, he was limited. But he never seemed to slow down as he aged. He and Bachwinkle had, I think, three matches in St. Paul in '83, and they were all terrific. They were great, and I know those guys were roommates in Hawaii in the '60s. I know that. They, you know, they had a, a past history with each other, but they put on great shows. And Wahoo, even though he's not in the '82 picture, Wahoo, I think, is was was underrated as he as he got older. He had great matches against Flair in Houston. And he, you know, he he always put on a great a great show. I've purposely left off the highlight of the year, however. Okay. Wanted to come to that, see, you know, ask you, or maybe put out there, uh, if anybody is has been exposed to these matches. In the middle of the year, in the summer, Ganyan Brunzel did a series against Tito Santana and Rick Martel which hailed the three, probably hmm, two of the three I would rate, number one and number two for things that I saw in person. Oh, wow. They had a three-match series, sort of. I can explain it, but the first, so two babyface teams, which was really cool to see. Got four guys that could really work. And they put on a clinic on three separate occasions the first match they did the finish where Tito got counted out of the ring because he went to do the cross body block and flew about what looked to be about 10 feet, went over the top rope, hit the floor, and got counted out. And then when the bell rang, Gagne and Brunzel went over to check on him. There was no like hint of anybody turning heel or it getting, you know, out of control. So they were being the good sports. And then they came back the next month with, of course, Brunzel against Martel, I want to say. Yes, I think it was Martel. And the two of them had a singles match where Martel pinned Brunzel clean in a really long, really well-done match, which led to the, the, the blow-off, sort of, with the Ghanian Brunzel against Tito and Martel in St. Paul, where this is one that I see out there a lot, the third match. But they did a finish where it looked like Tito Santana got his head taken off by a drop kick by Jim Brunzel. Really hot, really tremendous, uh, as good as anything I ever experienced live was that series. Uh, Brunzel had an awesome drop kick. 
Yes, he did. And yeah, he did. And it looked like legitimate. I mean, it looked really stiff. Tito didn't see it coming. Tito lifted up Greg into an atomic drop. Greg reaches back, tags Brunzel. So as the story goes, Tito doesn't know that he's the legal man. Tito drops Brunzel into the knee. Brunzel goes down. Greg Gagne comes in as the legal man. Or not Greg Gagne. Brunzel. I got it reversed. Brunzel. He gave Gagne the atomic drop. And Brunzel comes in, and Tito doesn't see him coming, and he's turned to the side, and he throws a drop kick, and you swear it knocked his head off. I don't know. Do you have, now, John, have you seen those matches? I saw one of the matches. I, it was probably the third match because I vaguely recall the finish uh, for the first time about 10 years ago. And I remember thinking, wow, that was and probably one of the best non-Japanese babyface versus babyfaces matches I've ever seen. I also wanted to throw this in. I was looking at WrestlingData.com today, which yeah. is an awesome website, and they have uh, Great Ganya and Jim Brunzel, the High Flyers, versus Tito Santana and Rick Martel, Strike Force. It's like, yeah. no, they weren't Strike Force until like five years later. Yeah, and they, I, I dare say that those guys had slowed down just a hair maybe by then, but I'm not sure. They, um, were, they were still good. I don't th- They probably oh, weren't as good as 82, but they were an excellent tag team. Yeah, Greg Gagne was also winding down a bit. He was he was older than, you know, they they kind of, Gagne and Brunzel were like the young lions, but Greg Gagne was older, and he, they, uh, he was winding down just a little bit. Um, he did have a few matches against Nick Bockwinkle in some cities, title matches, but uh, just kind of, that was kind of the, the peak of Gagne and Brunzel that year. But those matches, I would advise anybody, and all three of them do exist and are out there to seek out because they're tremendous. They were tremendous. All right. Yeah, I mean, I remember like 80, 78, 77 or so, like, you know, I'm thinking Greg Gagne is this super young guy, and then I see that he started, what, 1972? And I'm like, okay, how old is this guy really? Yeah, 73. I haven't done the math, but he's he's in his 70s now, so I guess you could get a calculator and do the math on that, but... um just, I mean, Greg Gagne takes so much shit, and it, he was he was he was a tremendous worker in the ring, and he worked his ass off, and he just never. He, he, it was just all about the physique, and Brunzel, you know, has, has been open about the fact that he was using steroids, which didn't help Greg's Greg's situation at all. Appearing I think Greg gets a hard time because a his physique can be. His dad was the promoter. Um, but I think people, for the most part, have come around on on great Ganya or more specifically the Ganya Brunzel team. Uh, my friend Chris Berg, who has been on a guest on this show and will be again, has told me that Ganya and Brunzel were every bit as good as Rock and Roll Express in their prime. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Rock and Roll Express were ter- tremendous, but they were very formulatic. And, you know, uh, Ricky Morton could take, could take a beating for a long time to give the hot tag. Kanye and Brunzel could go, you know, put on a show and, and go 30 plus minutes with, with the heels. And, and they were a well-oiled machine and very, very underrated. When I see, you know, Brunzel, Blair, or Brunzel and Ganya, it usually, usually gets my, my anxiety up a little bit because I don't think that Brian Blair was half the had half the chemistry with with Jim Brunzel as Greg Gagne did. Those, those and, guys. and 
supposedly those two didn't always get along, meaning Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel. So that might have <laughs> hampered the chemistry a little bit. Yeah, and I don't know how close Greg and, and Jim really were outside the ring. I, I don't know. They're appearing in an ind- independent show here not too far from where I'm at. Uh, oh, nice. And, yeah, I, and, they, you know, they're, they're appearing together, so I'm sure it's a it's an autograph gimmick deal. But um, it'd be nice to, you know, nice to see them. I haven't seen them do anything together uh, as far as that goes. And Brunzel has a little bit of bitterness in his shoot interviews and whatnot, it seems like, because Greg got the title shots and Greg did get some preferential treatment. But uh, they were both outstanding workers. I always thought the uh, – maybe not always. like uh, For the last at least 30 years, I thought that the AWA used Greg Gagne, if not perfectly, quite well because the Gagne name was a really, really big deal in the Midwest. He's Vern's kid, so obviously you've got some currency going there. But they never pushed him to the moon. They made him the tag team champion. They got him a good partner to work with. They, you know, they were an excellent tag team. It was not like Greg Gagne was ever pushed as a world champion or to me, even a serious threat to the title. So you can't say that the guy was over pushed. I mean, of course, Vern's going to take care of his kid, but it's not like he over pushed him. No, I, I agree with you on all that. And, and, and Greg Gagne was also, he doesn't get credit for it, but Greg Gagne was a, a pretty good interview too. He showed a lot of fire when he'd get, uh, get worked up, that Gagne, French Gagne temper, they would say. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that was one of their cliches. But I, I recall that, uh, that Greg could get real intense and Brunzel was fairly weak on promos. So. No, he wasn't very good. No, not not in that capacity. He wasn't, uh, which is a shame because he was such a great worker. He was a good-looking guy. He was an excellent worker. He he was a little bit small, but at the same, you know. But I always looked at Jim Brunzel and I was like, wow, you know, why isn't this guy, you know, the Florida heavyweight champion? Why isn't he, you know, oh, I know he went to Georgia at one point, but like, you know, why wasn't he a bigger star? outside of just the AWA, and the answer, as I, as I later learned, was, hey, the money in the AWA was good, and the, the lifestyle was good. And it, Yeah, yeah, the schedule wasn't too demanding, you know, overly demanding, and uh, it was his hometown. I know that Jim Barnett wanted Brunzel to hang out and stay down south. Um, oh, boy. According to Brunzel. Um, but, I, you know, I have a question for you, too. You may know this, and I don't, but... Um, Brunzel had that Mid-Atlantic run, and I think he even had a belt or two down there uh, for a year, year and a half, perhaps, maybe a year. And um, he says he got fired. Do you know anything about Jim Brunzel and the circumstances that, under which that Sandy Scott would fire him? I have ne- literally never heard that one before. Um, huh. I do know that he was the Mid-Atlantic champion when that belt actually meant something. Thing. Right, and I know that Sandy Scott. I mean, how else do I put it? I've heard stories that he was kind of an asshole, and so I guess it doesn't surprise me. I mean, Ric Flair would talk about how he wanted to go home to Minnesota and be there when his first child was born, and Scott told him, "Well, if you want to go out there, you know, when you drive back, just keep driving and head to Memphis because we can't use you anymore." <laughs> it's I've like, geez, oh yes, I've heard that story too. Now that you mention it. Yeah, um, gosh, you know, it's his hometown and his family's here and, you know, he can make good money. 
and incidentally, Brunzet, when it came time, the first guy to be pushed from from uh, the early days of Brunzel and Ganya having a career and being in tag team even, um, the first guy to get the, the push and have the singles matches against Bachwinkle, including a 60-minute draw in St. Paul, was 1976, and it was Brunzel. It wasn't very Ganya. And uh, those matches don't, uh, not to my knowledge, do they exist on video? I don't know when they first started recording arena matches. But um, I'm told that those were some of Bachwinkle's best matches. And Brunzel was just a couple of years into his career at that stage. And that's 1976. And um, that would have been interesting to see or in hindsight to take a look at now if they were to ever surface. Uh, yeah, you know what? I doubt it. I wish those old shows from the Boston Garden that I went to before they started being televised were out there. But I, I don't think they are. And I, I don't think those are either. Just, you know, the cost of filming and, you know, the things you had to do to get things filmed or just just didn't make sense, you know, to do that every night. Now, that was that's interesting. You said that, that the first series Bachwinkle had after winning the title yep. be, was against Jim Brunzel because. You would think that the logical angle would be Greg Gagne wanting to avenge his dad, and that makes sense on paper as far as the angle goes. But, I mean, I learned today that's not what they did. It sure does make sense, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I recently picked up, or not recently, a few years back, Mick Karch was selling some magazines, and I happened to get the wrestling news or, you know, the good one, not the after one, but it had photos from that. The uh, it was in, uh, no, late November '75 St. Paul Auditorium show with Paul Pershman, my buddy, as referee, and uh, and it had still photographs from 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 the uh, from the title switch. Bobby Heenan wasn't there that night. Bob Duncombe was was accompanied by Winkle at ringside, interfered, and the uh, Winkle got the pin after a pile driver. And there, and in the photos, they have Greg Gagne out there going after Bobby Duncombe. So I don't know if Greg was, you know, a second to Vern that night. I don't think so. He probably came as, you know, ran in from the back. But, um, yeah, you would think that Greg Gagne, and in 76 was, you know, Bachwinkle had Andre the Giant. He had everybody um, thrown at him in that sense. But, uh, yeah, the, I guess the matches he had with, with Brunzel would have been very early in his reign. And uh, probably excellent. Oh, you know, without question. And you know that I, I say, oh well, you know, Greg Gagne is the logical move, but at the same time, that's going to putting Jim Brunzel against uh, Nick Bockwinkle. You know, is going to get Jim Brunzel over. This hour always flies by, and I can't believe yeah. we're near the end of this. But I do want to ask you a question. It's not about 1982. Bobby Heenan. At the, I want to say the end of 78 or the beginning of 79, leaves the AWA. He's permanently banned, according to Stanley Blackburn or whoever. And he spends the year in Georgia. And then by, I want to say, early 1980, he's back. Can you tell us, A, you know, how they explained it? Because they called it a lifetime ban. Obviously, they called a lot of stuff a lifetime ban out there. And B, what was it like to have Bobby Heenan? No, what was it like to have Bobby Heenan gone for a year and then have him come back after that year? Well, to answer your first question, Heenan just appeared on AWA TV um, on the on the TV show, and um, as we've talked about in the past, Lord Alfred Hayes 
was brought in or was 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 the number one heel manager at that time. And Heenan Heenan came out and Hayes is in the ring with Super Destroyer Mark II, which is uh, Bob Remus, Sergeant Slaughter, as he went on to be. He was a magnificent even then. But uh, and 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 Heenan just claimed him. He said, "No, come with me." And then uh, Super Destroyer Mark II fires Lord Alfred Hayes right on TV. Oh, and wow! I you know I wasn't really watching wrestling on weekly. I was very young, but I've seen the footage. Yeah, yeah, Mister uh, Mister Wrestling Two, <laughs> Super Destroyer Mark II fires Alfred Hayes and walks off with Heenan. And then Heenan's brought it, and Hayes turns babyface because everyone deserts him and goes to Bobby Heenan. When Heenan comes back, he just snaps his fingers, so to speak, and everyone leaves, leaves, leaves uh, Alfred Hayes. So Alfred Hayes was turned babyface. He and Heenan had a hell of a good program going in 1980, uh, manager versus manager, and they both put on a good show at that point. Bobby Heenan, of course, but Alfred Hayes was. He was way better than most people remember him as, uh, as as a, as a smug manager, as a heel, even as a babyface. He was did a great job. He was very strong on the mic. His ring work was great. But that's that's kind of what happened with with Heenan coming back. He just kind of appeared, and uh, everything was apparently forgiven. I think Heenan talks about it. was it a Bobby Knight situation where he. Was it? I was very young. Didn't he throw some chairs or something? And he got suspended, and that gave Bobby Heenan the idea to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going down to Georgia to work. I gotta leave, you know. Let's speed up Wally Carbo or whomever, which happened. I guess the uh, East West Connection returned Adonis did in '82, also to explain them being suspended going to to New York. Uh, they didn't say that, but yeah, it was the same type of deal. I mean, they. I would think they would have to explain Bobby Heenan leaving. I mean, when you told me that you know Adonis and Ventura did that, I, I'd never heard that before, and I was a little bit surprised because Adonis and Ventura. And I don't mean this is a knock. Like you don't have to explain them leaving. They just showed up in 1980, and now it's a, a year later, and they moved on. Yeah, and, you know, they had a long, long run on top with Gagne and Brunzel that yielded many good matches, cage matches, t- title switches. You know, they run the gamut with that. But AWA at times could be really, really an efficient pro, uh, uh, promotion as far as explaining things like a suspension or, you know, beating up Wally Carbo, which is kind of was the go to for that those two situations. I think Stan Hansen did it, too, in 79 in AWA. Oh, man. And like I said, you don't even have to explain why Stan Hansen's gone. One last thing is just a, a quick observation. Yeah. Uh, we're talking, you know, peak AWA here, 1982 and 1983. I yeah. mean, business was crazy good. There are people out there, you know, younger than us, Brad, who kind of think, oh, yeah, and as soon as Hulk Hogan left, the AWA collapsed. No, the AWA had a very strong 1984, a, still a strong 1985, and then in 1986, things started to really go downhill. but. I mean, they were still drawing big crowds in 1984 with, you know, with Bruiser Brody versus uh, Jim Brunzel or Tony Atlas on top of the card. Yeah, the, the 84 was a very good year. Um, we saw mass. Oh, that 85 was mass superstar came in for a cup of coffee. 
But 84, uh, the first thing I guess that comes to mind is the, the uh, Blackwell turn with Brody. And uh, Brody was unlike anything that had ever been through here. And, oh, yeah. And it was crazy, too, because they had they had him with Adnan Casey and they had also um, Abdullah with Adnan Casey. So they were a tag team, you know, at least one night. And, and you know, Brody and Abdullah had, what, 700 double countouts? Against each other everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> they went all around the indie circuit in the mid to late eighties. Yeah, in eighty four when um when they did the, the Battle Royal uh title or they did the change. This is a story that I heard fairly recently that I never put together and I'll try to be quick with it. For uh Dusty Rhodes was brought in that night of the uh, the, the, the Battle Royal and um he was involved in the the old after match, which is one of the the best beatdowns I think that I've ever seen, and I was in the building that night, and it was really you know there was there were the the, um, the the crowd was really swarming, things were really weird that night, and they pulled it off magically. But Dusty was there, and I heard that, that the plan was for Jerry Blackwell and Dusty to team up against Abdullah and uh, Brody. After that, a um, couple problems there. Abdullah saw his paycheck for that night and never, never came back. Oh, no. And also, if you've got Abdullah and you've got Brody, you don't have a finish. You're right. Neither of those guys is looking at the lights. Nope, never. And even, you know, even, even, I don't want to get a tangent here, this is my last thing, but even when they had the Brody-Blackwell lights out match, which had tremendous heat, was was first time I'd ever seen a lights out match. I'd read about them, but nonetheless, Brody wouldn't even take the fucking pin in that. Blackwell pinned Adnan Casey, and they counted it down. Just yeah. typical Brody bullshit. And well, you know what though? You know Brody. I, I, not to defend Brody per se, but you know what you're getting coming in. I mean, he's not doing the job. He, he, he's not. That's going to get back to Japan, and it's going to. He thinks at least. You know, he was probably right. It, it would harm him. In Japan, that was his bread and butter. I mean, yeah. if, if you know a guy's not doing a job and you book a, a match, you know, like that, uh, you, you get what you get. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And Nick Bockwinkle claims, you know, that and I, I believed him. I believe him that he told Vern not to touch Brody because Brody had screwed up a finish in San Antonio that does exist on video as well, where it was supposed to go a certain way. And Brody, Brody just changed it on the fly. And and that's uh, Lufez is the special referee. It's from Hemisphere Arena, and you can see that things go sideways. And so Bockwinkle thought, well, this guy's not going to be professional, you know? Why? You know, he, he'd had a reputation and everything by that time. But yeah, Brody all right, Brad. Up. Thank you for taking the time to be on Stick to Wrestling. I really appreciate it. Brad is a school teacher. The year ju- literally just started for him. The first day was yesterday. So, Brad, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, the first week of school is not a lot of fun in some senses. But thank you so much for having me on. I believe I've been on six times now, and I'm very proud of that. So I appreciate that greatly, and uh, we'll maybe do it again sometime. Thank well, you. We're, we're six for six as far as having quality podcasts with Brad Bright's been on. I want to thank the great Brian Last for giving me this forum, for letting us have Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this show. Believe me, it, it's, it's raw footage by the time when he gets it, and it's a really good album by the time it's put out. 
And I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.